Would you just pray with me before we head into this? Father, we uh, do thank you for this morning that we can gather here in your presence, and we thank you for your word. And Jesus, we pray that uh, you would speak to our hearts, that you would challenge us and comfort us and convict us, Lord, that uh, as we look at your word, it would be life-giving and um, cause us, Lord, to draw closer to you. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. So chapter 20 is the last, like, really intense chapter before the really good ending. <laughs> and uh, actually, Revelation 21, 22 are, are possibly my favorite chapters in the, in the Bible. They're so good. And we're, uh, not only is it the end of Revelation, of course, but it's the end of the whole biblical story. So it's kind of, it's, there's a lot going on. Revelation 20 is the, is like the final culmination of all the judgment and all the, all of evil getting dealt with before we get to the happy ending. So this one's a little more intense than we get to the really wonderful, (laughs) the really wonderful stuff in the last two chapters. The other thing about chapter 20 is it's actually, it's probably the most controversial and most debated passage in Revelation. And that's because the first half talks about the millennium, uh, this thousand years, and it mentions it a couple times. But we also get Satan's defeat, which is great, and we get the vindication of Christian martyrs, which is great. That's all really, really good. And then the last part kind of looks at the judgment and destruction of death itself, and that's verses 11 to 15. There's kind of two chunks, kind of the first half, and then the last, the second half. Now, last week, we were doing chapter 19, and we saw how John takes us back to the sixth bowl, or the final battle, or the day of the Lord. We've heard it talked about a lot of different ways. And in that moment, Jesus appears, and he's already bloodied, but he's already victorious. And his only weapon, if you remember, is is not a sword in his hand. It's the sword from his mouth as he's proclaiming justice, and he's holding accountable those who have brought evil and ruin in God's world. So we have a battle right before this chapter. Just keep that in your mind. And now in chapter 20, John sees a vision of Jesus' followers who are martyred by Babylon, and they come back to reign and live with Jesus for a 1,000 years. That's verses 1 to 7. And then in verses 7 to 10, we see again a vision of the dragon rallying the nations of the world to rebel against God's kingdom. And instead of a victory, we we see them marching, and instead they're consumed by fire. The devil who deceived is thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, and they're tormented. And so instead of of a victory, the battle kind of starts, and then God wins and they're brought eventually before God's throne, and they sort of have to face the consequences of their eternal defeat. And so all the forces of spiritual evil, by the end of chapter 20, all of evil and all those who don't want to follow or participate in God's kingdom are destroyed, are brought to bear for the evil they've brought upon the world, and they're essentially given what they want, which is to exist apart from God to not be involved in God or his kingdom. And so they're, they're allowed, they're given that. They're thrown into the lake of fire, and in that place they're never again going to be able to corrupt God's creation. And so we have a battle, end of chapter 19, then you've got 
20, chapter 20, which talks about the thousand years, then you've got another battle. You've got kind of two battles depicted and this millennium part in between. That's kind of the summary of just where we're at, where, what's going on. In chapter 19, at the battle, you've got Jesus on the white horse. That's that part. And then in chapter 20, you get the defeat of Satan, and you get the thousand years. And this is, again, a really debated section about how do you interpret this well. And there's lots of different ways. I'm going to tell, talk to you about three ways this has been interpreted, just so you, just so you know. Um, and it's going to answer every question that's ever been asked about this passage. We're just going to, it's going to be all settled by the time we're done. It's not at all. It's okay. It's okay that it's not. Uh, but there's different ways it's been interpreted. So some believe that this is like a literal, chronological like sequence of events, right? And so they believe the first battle is Jesus' like first return, and then you get a thousand-year like kingdom of peace where Jesus reigns with people. I read a fictional book about this once, where during the thousand years they invented hover cars. And so, like, the disciples were always just, like, racing around and hovering. It was really, it was quite bizarre. But, and David was running a vineyard. It was really, anyway, it was really weird. But anyway, so <laughs> this first one, Jesus returns, and there's a battle, but not really because it's over because he's already victorious, right? And then you get the thousand years, and disciples are reigning with Jesus, and then you get, like, a final showdown with Satan and the final judgment, okay? And that's called premillennialism because Jesus comes before or pre a literal thousand-year millennium. Not complicated at all, right? So that's that one. And then there's others who believe it's a literal sequence of events as well, but that Jesus uh, will return after the thousand-year period, and that instead of him coming first and ushering in the thousand years, uh, the missionary activity of the church as the gospel spreads and nations and people's lives are transformed, uh, the world's just going to get better and better. <laughs> can tell that that's not what I believe because I don't think the world gets better. And it doesn't seem like the world's getting better and better. It's really popular before the world wars, and the world wars kind of went on this whole idea. But anyway, so everyone went, man, it's getting, it's not really great out there, is it? <laughs> After we had to deal with, you know, Nazi Germany and all the rest. It was like, I don't, I don't feel like it's going great. But anyway, there's this idea that uh, things are just going to get better and better and better, and then and like we'll all reign, and like most of the world will be Christians, and we'll be like, yay, it's going to be great, and then Jesus comes at the end. And that's called post-millennialism because Jesus comes at the end of the millennium. Does that make sense so far? So you've got like Jesus comes first and brings it in, and then you've got like we bring it in kind of, and Jesus shows up for like the after party. <laughs> So there's that one. Great. Brilliant. And then there's those that see the thousand years are, are not like a literal thousand year time period, but it's symbolic of the time period of Jesus' victory over spiritual evil. And the two battles depict Jesus' like future return from two different angles. So one is emphasizing his like victory in the battle, and the second is highlighting like the ultimate destruction of the devil and the beast and his followers. And this is called amillennialism because you don't have a literal like thousand-year millennium. And so in amillennialism, it's like a mouthful to get through. Amillennialism holds that in verses 1 to 7, when Satan is bound, that that happened at the cross. And so when Jesus died on the cross and rose again, Satan was bound and the millennium is not a future period, but it's the present age of the church because Jesus has already won the victory and is already reigning. 
And so we're like currently in the millennium. And at the end of this current time, Jesus will come back and defeat Satan finally once and for all. And then we're into like the new creation. Does that make sense? So you can see like there's different ways to interpret this, right? And all each of those views, some better than others, post-millennialism one is kind of a, a, a mess. But anyway, it's, it's fine. So it's, it's good. You can believe that. It's okay. Each of these views, the three big views, all fall within like historical Christian, like orthodox confession. Like you can believe any of those as a Christian and still be a Christian. Okay? It's It's okay. There's wonderful, like, Bible-believing, spirit-filled people who would hold to different views about the millennium. And that's okay because it's not a salvation issue. It's a, it's a mysterious future issue that we don't have a lot of details on. And we may want the Bible to give us more details, but it just doesn't. This is what it gives us, is a series of visions. But whatever your view, wherever you kind of land in the world of millennial thinking. Whatever your view, the main point is really clear. And that's what I want to emphasize, because I don't want to just say, well, like, one of these is the way, and if you don't believe this, like, you're no good or something. What, what the key is, regardless of those views, is that Jesus will return, and he will return as the true king, and when he does return, he'll deal with evil forever, and he'll deal with death forever, and he'll vindicate those who lost their lives following him. He'll deal with that. So that really, that's what I would want to drive home to you. And, and some people, this is like a really emotionally held issue, is like how you interpret this. And, and um, it's just not, it's really important when you're reading the Bible, uh, let the things that are very clear be the things that are that you major on. Let those help you interpret the things that aren't as clear. And so in this area, there's a variety of interpretations, which there's pros and cons to all each of those three millennial ones. Regardless of that, what's the main thing? Jesus returns and deals with evil in the world, folks. He deals with it. Whether we get a thousand-year party with him beforehand or not, it doesn't really matter, <laughs> especially when you're with him for the rest of eternity. I don't know if it matters if I get a thousand year before party. But anyway, Jesus comes and deals with evil and then like establishes the new heavens and new earth. So regardless of how you deal with the millennium, like I'm I'm I would rather emphasize that because that's what the Bible emphasizes. Does that make sense? Probably stepped on stepped on toes. I don't know if I did. Anyway. And then after all of that. Whatever happens with Satan, bound, whatever. I like the idea of Satan being bound, actually, at, because it, at, in Jesus' first coming, that makes sense to me, especially because in the Gospels, after the temptation in the wilderness where Jesus faces, I'm looking at keep, remember the thing in the, yeah, where Jesus faces Satan three times? After that point, especially I think it's in Mark, um, Satan never reappears in the Gospel. It's like he's been dealt with. And the, the cross is, is about dealing with sin. It's between Jesus and the Father. It's not about Satan, really. So that actually lines up well with the Gospels. Anyway, side, side note. After all of that, defeat of Satan, da, 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 then we get to this really intense part. And I want to talk about this because it is intense. Verse 11 to 15 is the judgment before the great white throne, which is really intense. 
and we get to this final scene of judgment, and like all the seals and the bowls and the trumpets, like that's all done, and now it's just like God's throne, just this like awesome reality of us before God, and the people of the earth are standing before God, and there's books that are opened, and it's the record of our lives. This is intense and a bit scary, I think. No one's excluded, right? Everyone who's ever lived is here. And it says death itself has to, like, give over the people who have died. And we're standing before God, and it's like a courtroom scene. It's like this judgment courtroom scene. And the books are opened up, and in them are, like, the details of your life. And it says in verse 12, I saw the dead, great and small, like everybody's there, right? Standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. This is good. And the dead were judged by what is written in the books according to what they had done. Whoa. That's scary. It's a bit intense, right? I don't know if I like that. Everyone's standing before God's awesome presence. And there's this moment of of the events of your life being looked at, like being unveiled. And so all of like the moments of the moments you wish you could forget that you did, that stuff's revealed. But also all of like the unsung acts of like love and compassion and goodness, like that's all revealed too. And no deed is omitted and no one is exempt. It's just like it's laid bare before God. And some of us may read this and find it kind of troublesome. Like, am I being saved because of my works? Like this emphasis on what's happened in my life? Don't we insist from Paul and and others that salvation is by God's grace through faith alone? And the answer is yes, it absolutely is. And we'll get to that. But Paul also never, never tells us, never argues that how we live is irrelevant. How we live actually matters. In fact, in Galatians 5, 19, 21, he gives this long list of sinful actions. It's like the mark of the life of a person who's opposed to God. And he says, I'm warning you, as I warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's just a really clear call from Paul to live for God. How you live matters. He does it again in Romans 2, verse 13. He says, it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous in God's sight, but the doers of the law who are justified. How I live matters. James makes the same point. James 2, 26, just as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. So folks, our lives, what we do, how we choose to live, it all matters to God. And it's all opened up at the end before God. And we're given an account of how we lived how we made the most of the time that we were given. But your works, my works, are not the deciding factor in my eternal destiny. Because alongside the books of all the deeds of every person, we read that another book is opened. It's the book of life. It's the book that belongs to the Lamb who was slain, and it's like a register of everyone who belongs to the Lamb. And it's one's, if one's name is in that book, the Lamb's book of life, not the list of the deeds you did, that's the deciding factor in your eternal destiny. So yes, 
your life is laid bare, all the good and all the mess of it. But then there's a moment where it's like that's just set aside and we turn to the book of life and go, yeah, but yeah, but his name's here. And regardless of what a mess he made over there, he gave his life to Jesus. And that changes everything. At the end of the day, that's what decides who spends eternity with God. And so the judgment scene shows us it's not, it's not the... It's not the works you did in your life to earn God's favor that get you in. Those are, those mat- how you live matters. But at the end of the day, it's a relationship with Jesus, ultimately, that decides what, what eternity looks like for us. And as the judgment scene ends, and it ends on this intense note, those whose names are not in the Lamb's book of life are punished along with death and Hades for their sins. And this may seem very intense. It's not, a popular, it's not a popular thing to talk about judgment for sin, right? We live in a world that it's like, well, whatever you want, as long as you don't hurt someone, whatever you want to do is fine. Uh, we don't like talking about sin. But this is really important for our understanding of the gospel. We have to give an account for what we've done. And we have to be faced with this really important question. Is your name written in the Lamb's book of life? Is your name there? Do you belong to him? Are you a disciple of Jesus? Are you one of his? It's the most important question we can ask, folks. Is my name in the book? Is he your Lord? At the end of the day, it won't matter how big your bank account is. It won't matter whether you're educated or not. It won't matter whether you made really made a mess of your life or not that matters but at the end of the day ultimately that's not the deciding factor the question is have you repented of your sin and given your life to jesus the end of the day literally the end of days that's what matters have you found peace in the true prince of peace And that invitation to have your name written in the book is open to everyone. Again, I love this verse, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. The unrighteousness that I deserve, that I have because of the mess of my life, is washed clean by the blood of Jesus. And if we want to be cut off from God's presence, if we say, I'm done with that, I don't want to be with you, God, God ultimately will say, okay, if you don't want to be with me, you don't want to be in my presence, I'll let you be where, I'll let you be apart from me. And I, I heard someone, someone was telling Sarah once about how they thought, you know, the church had just sort of made up hell to scare people into being good. Um, but heaven and hell are really more about the presence of God. And so if, if, God, if God all through your life is trying to woo you to himself, trying to engage in a relationship with you, and time and time again you just say, no, I don't want you, I don't want you, it's actually evil for God to force you to be in relationship with him, isn't it? I think we talked about this even last year when we were doing our Tough question series and this idea of like, if you were getting unwanted attention from someone of the opposite sex, right? And you, you tell them, no, 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 I don't want to go on a date with you. No, no, no. 
What if they turned around and forced you to be with them? We would say, that's not love. That's abuse. Well, God does the same thing. He's not going to force you to be in his presence. He's not going to force you to be in relationship with him. He honors your free will, the gift of free will, enough not to force you. And so it's actually an act of God's mercy to say, fine, at the end of the day, if that's your choice, I won't force you. And so he sort of quarantines evil. We've talked a lot about quarantine last year, right? He sort of quarantines evil and quarantines those who don't want to be in his presence. Over here, you can't corrupt my good creation anymore. And they're left there. And that's intense. That's an intense reality for us to grapple with. And then the question for us then, as we wrap this up, is what's our task as believers, as a church, if that's the ultimate reality that we know is coming? And it just brings us right full circle to really basic things. Our call as a church is to go and make disciples, right? To bear witness to the love of Jesus within us and call people into relationship with him to show them that through the cross, they can be restored to relationship with God. God's bridged the gap that's caused by our sin through Jesus. And, but there's a, like, there's an urgency to this that I think we just need to hear. Sometimes we just kind of go through our lives kind of apathetically, right? There's an urgency to this. And listen to Acts 17. And this is, as we get near to the end here, Acts 17, 30 and 31. It says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And he has given us this assurance to all by raising him from the dead. There's a day that's coming, folks, when he will judge the world. And on that day of judgment, friends, what was done to glorify God in this life will be rewarded, which is great, but ultimately we can stand before God only because of Christ's finished work on our behalf. That's why we can stand. And that's what salvation is. It's like the his perfect righteousness gets, uh, it's called imputed, gets imputed onto us. And the severity of sin gets put onto Jesus. That's what happens when he dies in our place. And what we as Christians can celebrate, folks, is we have no fear before that great throne. We don't need to fear that judgment when we trust in Jesus for salvation because there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, right? 1 John 4, 17 says we can have confidence on the day of judgment. And so we don't need to be afraid when we read a passage like this. If anything, it maybe it's sobering. I think it's sobering to just say, well, whoa, like how we live matters. And my friends around me who don't know Jesus, I, I want them to know Jesus. And my family members who don't know Jesus, I want them to know Jesus. And so how is that? Like it kind of comes right back to me and just how am I going to live in such a way that honors God and, and shows them that a life with Jesus is worth living, right? That's, that's kind of the, the basic implications for us as believers is this calls us to want to live for him so that all who will come will believe and enjoy life with him forever. One day we'll stand before that judgment throne, and I know on that day, 
as much as the list of nonsense in my life will be revealed. You're welcome. There it is. <laughs> It'll be the list of goofy sermons that Nick preached and, you know, bad examples he gave and the stuff he did that he never should have done. But at the end of the day, I can rest knowing my name's in the Lamb's book. And now you've all heard that, and now that choice is yours as well. And anyone who's heard online, that's gone out. And now we have that choice. And I, I'm just so glad that I am freed from condemnation. I am so good at condemning myself. I'm so good at being down on myself. I need to know the voice of Jesus that says, you are forgiven. You are cleansed. You are clean. Your name's written in the book. And I can rest in the full assurance of what he's done for me. And so I just pray today that you would know the full assurance of what he's done for you. And that that would cause you to want to live wholeheartedly for him as we look forward to that great day when he'll come again. Let's pray to that end. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you will deal with the evil in the world. Lord, that you will lay bare the brokenness in our hearts. You will fully expose all of the the mess that we have made of life and the mess that goes on in your creation. But God, at the end of the day, you don't focus on our sin. You focus on our relationship with your son. And Lord, I just pray today that we who follow you, who have given our lives to you, Lord, who would say we're your disciples, Lord, that we would rest in the assurance of knowing our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Lord, what a promise for us to know that neither height nor depth can separate us from you. Lord, even if we're to die, we know we'll be held in your presence and belong to you forever. Lord, thank you for that. I just pray, Jesus, as we are perhaps sobered this morning, just recognizing the, the, the gravity of, of all that that means, Lord, that you would cause us to want to live missionally, in the world around us. Help us, Lord, to, to so shine your light and your love to the people around us that they would be attracted to you. Lord, that it wouldn't be about us, but that people would see through us to you, that our lives would be like signposts pointing to you. God, we make a mess of that. We don't always do that well. Thank you that you forgive us. You cleanse us. And, Lord, you've actually commissioned us but also empowered us by your Spirit to live that life out well. You've actually given us yourself to live in such a way that we can point others to you by what we say and how we live. And so, Jesus, today I just pray a sense of your, your peace and rest and assurance on everyone here who follows you as their Lord and Savior, that we would see our daily lives, Lord, how we how we do school, how we do work, how we raise families, how we care for loved ones. That all of this is the arena of worship. All of this is about living for you, and it, and it all matters. And it all matters especially not just for what we will see in the end, but what others will see in us here and now. Lord, give us a heart for the lost. Give us a heart for those that uh, need to know your restoration and your forgiveness. Lord, help us to, to hear and cling to the good stories that we know of, of those who have been so transformed by your gospel. 
that would give us hope, Lord, for those that we look at and say, I don't think they'd ever come. Lord, give us a hope for the lost. And Lord, we give you our lives today. We thank you for this time of gathering together. And with the words you taught us, we pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. I'll just stand. I'll send you off with the benediction. Bless you guys. It's so good that you're here. Pray that you're encouraged today. Children of God who are loved and forgiven through our Lord Jesus Christ, may you know your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, and may you live in such a way that others are attracted to a life with Jesus. Friends, go in peace to love and serve the Lord. Bless you guys. Love you. If you'd like prayer, I'd love to pray with you. If not, have a fantastic week. We'll see you next time. Bless you.